Hey everybody, this is me being very vulnerable, very authentic, all kinds of therapist things. This is the teaser part of the recording, the part where I was going to just simply tell you that coming up on today's episode, seven science-backed things you must do to raise successful kids. I'm going to break down a wonderful article by Inc. Magazine's Bill Murphy Jr., but uh, I inserted an ad for the first time coming up after the teaser and had no idea that it had gone a little bit long. So the ad coming up is about four minutes long. It's uh, very uh, something I'm kind of passionate about. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. You can have your finger ready to that to advance uh, every, what, 15, 30 seconds. That is perfectly okay with me. Um, moving forward, I will try to shave the time of this ad down. But uh, if you got a couple of minutes, check it out. I think it might be something that will be worth your while. And uh, then we will get to, immediately we will get to the seven science back things you must do to raise successful kids coming up on The Virtual Couch. So if you've been a longtime listener to The Virtual Couch, you've heard me do some ads for some partners that I have truly been passionate about, but you might have also noticed that it's been a little while since I've talked about those partners. And all of them are wonderful companies, but here's kind of a little behind the scenes from the podcast world. So once you hit a certain number of downloads, you start getting approached by a lot of people to advertise. So at that point, I kind of, uh, I guess I sort of pumped the brakes, as the kids say. They, They actually probably don't say that anymore. But I decided to hold off on advertisers and try to send folks to my website um, maybe you noticed TonyOverbay.com, going to Instagram, virtual couch, that sort of thing. And I promised I would keep people posted on my programs like the Path Back or some new programs that were coming up on happiness and marriage and a lot of good things and uh, working on all of those things. And, and But I, again, not really turning to the podcast uh, advertisers. But, but then I was approached by a sponsor pretty recently that honestly, I didn't know if I would ever come on their radar. But I did. And that's uh, the folks at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. So BetterHelp.com is the world's largest e-counseling program, and their mission is to make professional counseling accessible and affordable and convenient, and so that anybody who struggles with life's challenges, which I really feel like is all of us, can get help anytime, anywhere. And so let me start getting this message dug deep into those neuropathways. Um, BetterHelp.com, and again, it's uh, H-E-L-P. It's not BetterHelp, it's BetterHelp. So BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash virtual couch. So I, I think you can kind of see why this would be so important from my angle. I am a therapist. Um, I'm not a professional podcaster. Uh, I see a full load of clients weekly, every week. And here's what I didn't see coming, that if I'm being completely honest, the larger the podcast has grown, the more feedback I get. And I love it. I, I, I really do. But the feedback isn't always, hey, I love the show, or here's an idea for an episode. I get emails literally, I can honestly say this literally daily, from people who who really want to know more about therapy, who have tried therapists and maybe not felt a fit. Or they're afraid, I've got people that are afraid to try therapy, or afraid that they'll run into somebody they know in the waiting room, or they, you know, they want a way to just kind of ease into therapy, or they want me to just answer their questions. They even want to pay me for emails. Uh, why can't they just text their therapist or email their therapist or... You know, will all therapists do video appointments? And these are the things that I keep getting over and over again. So BetterHelp.com is bringing these services to life. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's not coaching and not saying anything negative about coaching. But these are all professional counselors, professional licensed therapists done securely online. I think they have over 4,000 therapists um, on their network. So so here's a little bit more about BetterHelp.com. Uh, and again, it's betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Please remember that. Um, but there's a broad range of expertise, which, and I've been under the uh, under the hood, behind the scenes, um, which has been just fascinating to see. I mean, they have hundreds of forms. Uh, that, I mean, not just forms, but uh, things that your therapist can send you, um, worksheets and homework and uh, just assessment tools. And so they have a broad range of expertise in their counselor network, which might not be locally available in many areas. Or, you know, this service is available for clients worldwide. I get a lot of military people who are, um, stationed all over the world that are looking for good therapists. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your, to your therapist. You, you will get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit uh, in the waiting rooms if you're worried about that, kind of with traditional therapy. Now, to be fair, my waiting room is fantastic, a fireplace, a TV, um, all this wonderful stuff. But I know that that's not the case all the time. Um, BetterHelp.com will help you assess your needs. They'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And there's some assessment tools that will kind of point you in that direction. And then you can start communicating with somebody in under 24 hours. That's, again, um, I've, I've had a very, been blessed with a nice busy practice. And, uh, you know, you can have a wait list. Um, sometimes it can take a while to get into a therapist. Um, BetterHelp.com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. And I really feel like their assessment tools alone, as I've kind of dug into that, 
have been pretty impressive. Uh, makes me realize that, you know, they really are trying to funnel this into the right fit for you. A um, little bit more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. And those are the things, honestly, I never knew. I would hear the BetterHelp.com ads, and I really wondered what the the count, what the uh, the pricing was. And the financial aid part, I had no idea. But, uh, I mean, BetterHelp likes to say that they want you to start living a, a happier life today. So visit their website, and you can read their testimonials. They're posted there daily. Um, and I'll probably read some of those down the road. But BetterHelp.com slash reviews. And, again, visit BetterHelp.com, and that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash virtual couch and you can join it's over 500,000 people right now that are taking charge of their mental help with the help of an experienced professional so it, there is a there's a special offer uh, that i have it's for the virtual couch listeners you get 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com again that's better com slash virtual couch please um you know if you have questions uh, go there uh, check it out read the reviews but go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. And I'm going to be honest, I'm going all in here. Um, I have my own account. I'm going to choose my therapist and uh, I'm going to talk to him about what it's like to get a dozen emails a day, every day, and want to be able to help everybody, want to be able to help the world. So I hope that I've made it clear in my episodes that first off, I am not a replacement for professional counseling. Uh, my goal is to bring awareness to the things that I believe can help. You can look for people that uh, know things about the nurtured heart or about emotionally focused therapy or about acceptance and commitment therapy. I wish I would have said those things earlier in the in this ad. Um, but I hope that I always convey the message to seek help through professional counseling. If you are an in-person person, then go find somebody in your area. You bet. If you want to try online counseling, then I recommend giving BetterHelp.com, again, BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch a try. So please go visit BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch. And if you use that link, you'll get 10% off your first month of services. Um, here is to better mental health for all of us. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to episode 140 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultramarathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people like you reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of turning to pornography as a coping mechanism, as a habitual pattern. If you or anyone that you know is struggling to put pornography behind you once and for all, and trust me, it can be done, and done in a healthy, cup-filling, strength-based, hold-the-shame way, please head over to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can shortload it, uh, shortload, is that a word? You can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And just please take a quick second, visit Virtual Couch on Instagram at Virtual Couch. And you can find a Virtual Couch page on Facebook. There's also Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist there as well. And last but not least, please stop by tonyoverbay.com and sign up there to find out more about a lot of really exciting programs and things coming up soon. Let's get to the episode. Okay, are you ready? Because we are going to have a lot of fun today on the podcast. We're going to cover a lot of data, and the article that I am that I am going to reference is an article from Inc. Magazine by Bill Murphy, not to be confused with Bill Murray, and uh, it is called Seven Science-Backed Things You Must Do to Raise Successful Kids. And the author, Bill Murphy, and I even wrote it on a sticky note here because when I was, uh, when I was doing a little bit of reading earlier, I kept referring to him as Bill Murray in my head. And even on his website, which is Bill Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y Jr., J-R dot com, uh, Bill Murphy Jr., Bill says that you probably stumbled upon him either by reading his Inc. magazine or Huffington Post articles, or you, you misspelled trying to Google search Bill Murray, the actor. But in his article, Seven Science Back Things You Must Do to Raise Successful Kids, Bill Murphy says it's not what you try once or what attitudes you hold, it's what you actually do every single day. So a little tiny bit more about Bill Murphy. I enjoyed looking over his website. He says he's, uh, he works on business development for uh, a company called Some Spider uh, in a New York City-based digital media company that runs uh, several awesome properties on the web. And he says he is an Army veteran, a recovering lawyer, which I love, and a reluctant cat owner, which I think a lot of people can identify with. So, so let's get into this article. And I've got some supporting evidence and research that we're going to talk about as well. So he, he quotes Aristotle. Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So Bill says it's true whether we're talking about ourselves or our children. 
that, again, think about that concept from Aristotle. We are what we repeatedly do. So he recently talked, not Aristotle, but Bill Murphy, about an article that he had written about uh, about how wealth um, and wealthy parents can give kids an advantage, which apparently was a bit controversial. I did go back and look at the article. And so when you do, I'll link to his article on my show notes. So I just wanted to bring a little attention to that. You'll kind of get met with that when you first turn to this article. But he said, let's set that one aside and focus instead on seven things that almost every parent can do for their kids every single day to give them more of an edge. And so he said, while writing at Tech Insider, there were two researchers, Rachel Gillette and Drake Bayer, and they put together, in a very fancy word, a great compendium of research-backed advice. So he, uh, and, and I'll link to that as well, he says this article is well worth reading. And so, and, and also Bill Murphy has a free ebook on the subject of how to raise successful kids that admittedly I have not looked over yet, but he says it's free and he, you can download it um, from his website. But here we go. Let's get on to number one. Number one is make your kids do chores. Now, first of all, I take exception with the word make, of course. It would be how to encourage your kids to do chores um, gently, or not even gently, maybe uh, lovingly, aggressively nudge them toward doing chores. But he says taking out the garbage, mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, they're not just ways to make your life easier, but they're ways to make your kids' lives better too. And quoting Julie Lithcott-Hames, who is a former Stanford University dean and author of how to Raise an Adult, which if you recognize that title, um, my friend Jonathan Alva and I did a book review of that book somewhere, I think maybe it was back in the 50s, 60s, as far as virtual couch episodes go. But Julie Lithcott-Haim says, by making them do chores, they realize, quote, I have to do the work of life in order to be a part of life. And, and I really do appreciate that concept. Now, this is one where I think a lot of parents are listening and I'm gonna, my hand is raised, literally, I'm raising it right now where I haven't necessarily been the best at, uh, at doing the chores. The people do their chore charts. They try to motivate their kids. A lot of times it's more work to try to get the kids to do their chores. And I've often told clients in session that I want to do an entire podcast series on the dishes. And here's where I'm going from. I'm going to do this a little bit off the cuff. But so I will have people talk about their kids not doing the dishes. And I will have them talk about all of the excuses that a kid makes in doing the dishes. And I know that from a nurtured heart parenting aspect, and I've done several episodes on nurtured heart parenting, we are trying to hide our buttons. We're trying to not react negatively. So when our kids don't do the dishes, in theory, we don't react. We don't blow up. We, we give them an opportunity and we seek opportunities to praise. So when they do something, when they do a little bit of the dishes or, or that sort of thing, that we'd get to say the things of like, hey, I appreciate you doing the dishes because that sure helps out uh, your mom and me, that sort of concept. And I'll have a lot of people say that in that moment, though, when they're not doing the dishes, what do I do then? There's nothing to praise. And, and I know I can kind of at times feel like I have an answer for everything, especially when it comes to parenting. But the, the, the work of parenting is happening not just in that moment where they're not doing the dishes, but it's nurturing this good behavior, building this inner wealth. It's noticing them throughout the day. It's, it's pointing out these positive things, not just saying good job, champ, but it's, uh, hey, I appreciate uh, you picking up your brother from school today. That really helps me a lot. Or I, I love it um, when I see you being nice to your grandma. That shows me how kind and compassionate you are. So you just start to become a little bit more intentional on building this inner wealth in your, in your child. So then when we get to this moment where they're not doing the dishes, you know, in theory, we are supposed to then kind of step back and say, hey, tell me uh, what's going on for you. Why, why, aren't you? why aren't you really feeling up for doing the dishes right now? And I know that kids are going to make excuses, but the kid wants to be heard. So if they feel like life is not fair or, uh, you know, they're kind of giving you, I'll do it later, then it's hearing them and not immediately going on the attack and, uh, and saying, okay, you know, I hear you. That makes sense. I can understand. Uh, you want to finish whatever you're doing. I just worry that um, this, is those, this is a situation where you're not going to do the dishes. That, that's right. I sound like I'm about to ready to, to start on a, on a whole parenting podcast. So I will kind of take a break there. But so the concept is having them do the chores. And then my whole point is as a nurtured heart um, parenting person or as an emotionally focused EFT uh, type of therapist who says, I will have a little bit of empathy and compassion. So tell me more. But it is hearing your kids and then trying to come up or figure out the reasons why them not doing the chores is happening. But that and the reason I set the table with that concept is he also says at the end of this part one, he says related, be an authoritative parent rather than authoritarian or a permissive one. Create a world in which your child grows up with a respect for authority 
but doesn't feel strangled by it. And I think that's maybe where I should have read that paragraph before I went on that tangent about the nurtured heart parenting is that you can be an authoritative parent rather than an authoritarian or a permissive one. The permissive one, we know how that one goes, right? Hey, uh, do your dishes, do the dishes, do the chores, and then we never follow up and then we get angry about why aren't you doing anything? And then we, we raise our voices and we get really angry and then they do something. And so we've created this pattern where our kids only react when we get angry. And I think a lot of parents that I talk to fall into that, that pattern. So they say, but they don't do anything until I yell. And it's like, well, right, but we've kind of set the stage where they're, they're not going to do anything until you yell because you're not going to really do anything until you yell. So, so it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's this, the whole setup there. So growing up with a respect for authority, but not feeling strangled by it. Um, I did a couple of episodes on teaching kids empathy, which I think is back in the eighties or nineties of episodes, not years, but, uh, uh, the numbers of episodes on the virtual couch. And in those, there's a lot of concept there about being able to nurture empathy. And a lot of that comes from sharing your experiences of what you're seeing with regard to people and things in the world and having your, your kid be heard as well. So I think that's a big part where you can help someone grow this respect for authority, but not feel strangled by it. And the concept of authoritative versus authoritarian, authoritarian is the person who is going to lay down the law at all, you know, regardless of, of hearing a circumstance or a situation or a unique situation about, you know, from your teenager or your kid. And I know, and I know, I know that a lot of kids, uh, that what they're going to say is the reason why they're not doing things is going to sound like an excuse. And this is where I love to jump into this world of acceptance and commitment therapy. If my goal, though, is building a, a relationship with my child, then uh, is, does that sound like an excuse? You know, yes, no, um, it probably is an excuse that they're giving. But is that a workable or productive thought toward your goal of building a relationship with your kid? Here's where I go back to this doing episodes completely about doing the dishes. If your goal is to have the dishes done, you know, at all costs, at the cost of the relationship to your kid, then by all means, then you can jump into this authoritarian role and you will demand and, and anger and have those dishes done at the expense of that relationship with your kid. So there was number one, make your kids do chores. Number two, see, teach them social skills. Um, Bill Murphy says, have you ever worked with socially awkward people? He said, it'll probably be no surprise to you to learn that a 20-year study at Penn State and Duke found that kids with good social skills turned out to be more successful. Socially competent children who could cooperate with their peers without prompting be helpful to others, understand their feelings, and resolve problems on their own, were far more likely to earn a college degree and have a full-time job by age 25 than those with limited social skills, according to these researchers, Gillette and Bear. And, and here's the part where, and, and I didn't even mention this up front, but I've uh, actually been emailed this particular article a couple of times and asked to get my thoughts on it. So that's part of what, uh, what prompted this, um, this podcast recording, because I thought we could do some good work around parenting. And uh, talking about uh, how to raise kids. But then I also, I, I, coming up here in a little bit, I've got a couple of things that might question some of the research that, uh, that, is, that is in this article. Or I think, if anything, it's going to show you that we really need to figure out what your particular goals are as a parent based on your own values. And then how do you implement those in this kind of framework of, of creating a, a, or becoming a better parent? So teaching these, these social skills, how do you do that? I would, I would refer back to this concept, uh, this of uh, how to teach a kid empathy and these, uh, these episodes that I did earlier. Maybe I'll, I need to link to those in the show notes as well. Because a lot of that is just this concept of being right there alongside your kid and helping them understand or figure out the world, asking them what are the things that they are seeing. Um, have them describe to you uh, people that they see and, and emotions and, and be able to start to label and name emotions. That's some of that fundamental work that is going into teaching them social skills. Is it normal? And, and here's where I want to talk as well. Um, you know, that it wasn't going to break into the world of personality disorders or the, the dreaded narcissism or those sort of things that I do a lot of podcasts on. But if you go look at the, the research that's kind of around personality disorders, it's pretty fascinating. A lot of people want to know, are they, is it nature, nurture? Um, is that something that uh, my, my child was just born with? Or have I, have I created this person with a personality disorder? And, and what I really appreciate is some of the, some of the research, some of the data that says that you know, when our kids are little, every kid is self-centered. That's the kind of the way they work. Um, life is about what is happening to them. And as they have this, this secure attachment to hopefully a parent or parents or grandparents or, or people in their lives, as they have this secure attachment where they feel like the person does care about them, hears them, um, is there for them, cares about them, wants to know more about them, they, they slowly move from this self-centered concept to self-confident. 
Now, that doesn't mean that if we're not self-confident that something happened along the way, there's still a lot of factors or variables at play. But but that, that concept is that the more that we're kind of there with them and become help them become that secure attachment, then the more they can move from self-centered to, to more of this self-confident, which along that way is teaching them social skills. All right, so let's move on to number three. Teach and demonstrate high educational expectations. And I, I really like this a lot, then to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent here, too. He says that we're combining two practices here, but they're related. Um, he meaning Bill Murphy, the, the author. He says, first, a University of Michigan study finds that if you want your kids to go to college, present yourself as a good role model by make sure, making sure you finish your education first. And he said, meantime, make it clear that you expect them to study through college, too. And so right away here, and, and this is a part where I love the therapist uh, part of me that, uh, that just bubbles up that I can't turn off. And that is the concept of if somebody is hearing this now and they're feeling the, oh, no, I didn't finish college. I'm not that role model. What's wrong with me? Um, you're the only one that has that, the, those private experiences that have led you to the point where you're at right now. You know, the, the nature, the nurture, the birth order, the, uh, the, the, the things you've been through in life, the attachments, the lack of attachments, the, you know, whether you've moved, whether you've had people in your um, life die, all these sort of things. So when you hear this, you know, if you want your kids to go to college, present yourself as a good role model, you know, we're working. That's, that's the template that kind of uh, this, this research or this study is working from. If you didn't finish college and that wasn't something that uh, was as important for you, um, then that's okay. I mean, that's the data that we're working with. So teach and demonstrate high educational expectations doesn't just mean having someone attend a four-year college and get a degree. Um, this is the part where I have people that have wonderful, they, they provide wonderful examples of uh, trade schools, technical schools, um, auto mechanics, IT, um, those sort of things as well. Uh, oh boy, a lot around like nursing, um, ultrasound, uh, sonogram, you know, all these this kind of technologies where you go and learn a trade that is a very valuable trade that that is a, a that pays well, uh, cosmetology school, all of these things that are that are educational uh, experiences. And so we can model those. It does, doesn't mean you just have to have a four-year degree. But, uh, but the quote here uh, says, parents who saw college and their child's future seem to manage their child toward that goal, irrespective of their income and other assets, said UCLA professor Neil Halfen, who studied data from 6,600 kids who were all born in the year 2001. So I think the point there, it, which I liked, is it, you can fill in anything. If it's parents instead, who say, it says parents who saw college and their child's future. If it was just parents who saw higher education, if it was parents who who saw a trade, if it was parents who saw education continuing in their child's future, then seemed to manage their goal toward that, uh, toward, toward that, <laughs> stumbling over my words here, manage their child toward that goal, irrespective of income and other assets. I think that's the key. So it's that, and, and really it's that concept of building that relationship with, uh, with your, with your kid, with your child, with your teen, and then working toward their future, being alongside them for that ride, being able to nurture those things that are important. Uh, all right, let's turn to number four in this article. Teach them to develop good relationships. Uh, this one I do enjoy. This one, this one, here's, okay, here's where we're going to get a little bit off the off the beaten path. So uh, actually, let me do this before we quit. I got to grab a drink of water. So now is perfect time to take a quick break. So uh, pause, we'll be right back. Hey, it's just me. Uh, I didn't want to play that entire betterhelp.com ad that I did at the beginning because I know it was a little bit long. I know I got a little bit fired up. I got passionate. But I want to try one of these uh, ads midway through. So here's the part where, admittedly, if I'm listening to a podcast, sometimes I'm finding that little skip ahead button. So uh, look at that. I've been honest about that. So hopefully, with that said, you maybe won't feel the need to skip ahead. I'll try to make this quick. But uh, this is just a reminder to please go to betterhelp.com, better, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash virtual couch. Um, BetterHelp.com is the world's largest e-counseling program, and their mission is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, convenient to anybody who struggles with life's challenges. They can get help anytime, anywhere. And, uh, and so, again, I think you can see why I am so passionate and excited that uh, BetterHelp.com is a partner of the virtual couch. They have a broad range of expertise in a, in a lot of different areas, acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, if you're a cognitive behavioral therapy guy, if you like a little bit of nurtured heart, a little bit of love and logic, if you want some parenting help, um, Go check them out uh, and go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. Um, the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log in anytime to your account and send a message to your therapist and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And uh, that assessment tool at the beginning is pretty impressive. They'll help you assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you'll start communicating in under 24 hours. 
So uh, what, are you, what are you waiting for? BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today in whatever way that you feel that it would be helpful for you. Parenting, um, individual counseling, uh, couples counseling, you name it. So visit their website, read their testimonials, go to betterhelp.com slash reviews, and you can check it out. But uh, visit betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com, and join over 500,000 people that are taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional therapist. And again, special offer for Virtual Couch Podcast listeners. Uh, you get 10% off your first month. And, uh, and I mentioned this in the beginning, if you didn't listen to that entire um, ad, but uh, it's, it's a little bit more affordable than traditional counseling, and they also do have financial aid available. So a special offer for my virtual couch listeners, you get 10% off your first month. Just go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. All right, back to the show. Okay, and we are back. So number four, picking up there. Number four, teach them, them being kids, to develop good relationships. So here's where things get a little bit, uh, I'm not going to say controversial, but I wanted to do a little bit of side research. And I'm going to bring a few different things in. So hang, hang in there with me for a second. Um, in the article, Bill Murphy says, teach him to have developed good relationships. He says, we've all heard of parents whose marriages were failing, but who decided to stay together for the sake of the kids. He says that might be an, uh, admirable, but it matters more that they have good relationships with each parent and with siblings if they have any. So then he quotes a University of Illinois study that showed that it matters more that kids grow up in a home without conflict among their peers and siblings than if their parents are together. He then quoted, uh, he said, in second, a study of children born into poverty reported that, quote, children who received sensitive caregiving in their first three years of life did better in school and had healthier relationships and greater academic attainment in their 30s. That was according to the research of Gillette and Bayer. So so I, I had a hard time, um, and I, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but this one actually, uh, I did a little bit more editing, did a little bit of a re-record on a couple of these points, and this is one of them, where I, I in my initial recording, I just kind of passed through that but call it the marriage therapist. I mean, but I know that there are a lot of people listening that that aren't concerned about a divorce, haven't been through divorce or aren't contemplating a divorce. And so to them, a couple of paragraphs, it just kind of validates maybe their experience or if it doesn't apply to them, they move on. But, the, you know, again, marriage therapist to me, seeing 20 couples a week or more, I do recognize that how difficult this can be when someone doesn't feel like their relationship is as solid as it needs to be. And they worry about the effects, the effect that it's having on their children. And a lot of times people say, well, I'm going to stay, we're going to stay together for the kids or we're going to make it until our youngest one is 18. And that's the part where I, I understand. I have empathy for, I can't have a complete understanding, but I have empathy for a lot of people in those situations. Because if we go to those private experiences that, that of those people that I work with, that, uh, that there's a good chance there are a lot of times they have been children of divorce or they remember what that was like. And so they, they will get very emotional in the room and want to spare their children any of those kind of similar feelings or concepts that they may have may have had. So there's an article that I keep bookmarked often, and it's from the Scientific American, and it's uh, by Hal Arkowitz. It's called Is Divorce Bad for Children? And I'll, I'll link to this as well. So I just think there's some really interesting data here. He says many of the 1.5 million children in the U.S. whose parents divorce every year, year feel as if their worlds are falling apart. He says, divorcing parents are usually very concerned about the welfare of their children during this troublesome process. Some parents are so worried that they remain in unhappy marriages, believing it will protect their offspring from the trauma of divorce. Yet parents who split have reasons for hope. Researchers have found that only a relatively small percentage of children experience serious problems in the wake of divorce or later as adults. And then he says that in this article, his article, he says, we discussed the findings as well as the factors that may protect children from the potentially harmful effects of divorce. And again, I, I know that a lot of my audience, the, a lot of people that listen to the virtual couch, um, are, are having some challenges in their marriage. And I know that there are a lot of components and factors. There's societal pressures. Uh, there's um, religious community pr pr uh, pressures. And, and I want you to know, I understand that. And I know that there are, are commitments, covenants, things that have been made that a lot of times people feel like there is no option. This is their lot in life. And so, again, I, I hear you. And only... You know, only you can be the one who ultimately decides what is what is right for you in your relationship, what you are, what you are willing to um, I don't want to say put up with, but what you're willing to deal with or what you're willing to do um, and the reasons behind that. Again, that is your own private experience, your own uh, personal journey. And so in those situations, I, I just oftentimes just say, you know, just do, do all you can to try to, to repair or build that relationship. Or if that relationship is unsalvageable, um, and that sounds so judgmental for me to say that, if you feel like that relationship is, is not salvageable, 
then by all means, please build up your own emotional baseline. And uh, that's the part where I hear I work with several teenagers uh, probably every week. Um, and I, was, I felt like I was saying I've worked with several teenagers over 15 years. I've worked with hundreds of teenagers over 15 years and uh, that where they are children of divorce, so where a lot of them knew that divorce was inevitable or they knew that their parents didn't have a positive relationship. Um, they often will identify one of their parents as the, the quote, the rock, the person who is really um, who they turn to, who they, they know that, that that parent is going through a lot. And so, so again, I, I understand that each of these situations is different, and there's a, a reason why someone wants to stay for the time that they want to stay. But it, but if there's a chance to repair that relationship, please do all you can. If your partner is not willing to do that, um, you, you know, send them my podcast. I don't know for it's something to get them thinking. Uh, but and if none of that is going to work as well, then uh, then by all means, please do your own individual work, raise that emotional baseline, put yourself in a position where you can be that rock, you can be the person for your kids. So back to this, uh, this article, um, by Hal Arkowitz. So he says divorce affects most children in the short run, but research suggests that kids recover rapidly after the initial blow. In a 2002 study, psychologist E. Mavis Heather Hetherington of the university of Virginia and her then graduate student, Ann Mitchell Elmore found that many children experience short-term negative effects from divorce, especially anxiety, anger, shock, and disbelief. But, but then, uh, says those reactions typically diminish or disappear by the end of the second year only a minority of kids suffer longer. Most children divorce also do well in the longer term. In a quantitative review of literature in 2001, sociologist Paul R. Armato, then at uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State University, examined the possible effects of children several years after a divorce. The studies compared children of married parents with those who experienced divorce at different ages. The investigators followed these kids into later adulthood, adolescence, or the teenage years, assessing their academic achievement, emotional and behavioral problems, delinquency, self-concept, and social relationships. So this was a very in-depth study. On average, the, the studies found that only a very small difference on all of these measures between children of divorced parents and those from intact families, suggesting that the vast majority of children endured the divorce well. So here's the part that I really find interesting about, uh, about this research. Researchers have consistently found that high levels of parental conflict during and after a divorce are associated with poor adjustment in children. Now, you would want to say, well, no kidding. And, and I know that this uh, whole topic deserves a, a podcast on its own. As a matter of fact, I, I need to do that. Um, but I often have people that when they are going through divorce, that they say they just want to do whatever is right for the kids. But then their own issues get in the way. There's anger. There's um, there's sadness, there's withdrawal, all of these. I can understand those emotions, but if the goal is to put the children first, then, you know, is it fair to have those emotions? Absolutely. Is it productive to air them out in front of the kids? No. Um, it, you know, and, and so that's the part where just really getting down and, and doing some really good co-parenting uh, counseling is a good thing, um, but really following ground rules and just understanding that uh, we still have this co-parenting that we have to do for the kids. So... Um, here we go. Where did I? Oh, I died. Okay. Apparently, when the marital conflict is moved, let me let me back up. I don't want to miss this part because this is the important part, which is why it got me off on a little bit of a soapbox there. So the effects of conflict before separation, however, may be the reverse in some cases. So let me even back up further. So researchers have consistently found that high levels of parental conflict during and after divorce are associated with poorer adjustment in children. That's where I went off the path. The effects of conflict before the separation, however, may be the reverse in some cases. This is this is so interesting. And in 1985 study, Hetherington and her associates reported that some children who were exposed to high levels of marital discord prior to divorce actually adjusted better than children who experienced low levels. Now, that doesn't mean uh, go amp up the marital discord before divorce, but it's just this is the data, the way the data presented. Apparently, when marital conflict is muted, children are often unprepared when told about the upcoming divorce. And that's that concept of when someone feels blindsided, um, if they think everything was going on, everything was going fine. Again, the goal is not to argue in front of the kids, but this is just kind of the way the data presented. They're surprised or even terrified by the news. In addition, children from high discord families may experience the divorce as a welcome relief from their parents fighting. That's the part that I thought was really fascinating because, that you know, I will have if I'm doing couples therapy, I'll have couples that say I, my, I'm sure my kids don't have a clue. If I'm doing counseling with teenagers who know that their parents uh, have um, uh, relationship issues or conflict in the marriage, it, they, they are very aware, extremely aware. Um, that that's the case. So taken together, the findings suggest that only a small percentage of young people experience divorce-related problems. And, and again, that's not saying they, they experience none, but it's in the long term. Even here, the causes of these lingering difficulties remain uncertain. Some troubles may arise from conflict between mom and dad associated with the divorce. The stress of the situation can also cause the quality of parenting to suffer. I think that's a, there's so many hidden gems here. 
that uh, the stress of the situation or the divorce could cause the quality of parenting to suffer. So when I'm working with a couple or I'm working with an individual going through a divorce, you know, it's, it's again, self-care, raise that baseline and uh, be there. Be there for your kids. Um, do your best not to let that quality of the parenting to suffer. Divorce frequently contributes to depression, anxiety, or substance abuse in one or both parents. So that may bring about difficulties in balancing work and child rearing. And these problems can impair a parent's ability to offer children stability and love when they are most in need. Um, then, man, I've got uh, two more paragraphs. Let me let, hold with me here for a second. If you're if you're interested in this part, if not, you can skip ahead uh, 15, 30 seconds. Um, the experience of divorce can also create problems that do not appear until late in the teenage years or, or adulthood. In 2000, in a book titled The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year landmark study, Judith Wallerstein, then at the University of California, Berkeley, and her colleagues present a detailed case study suggesting that most adults who are children of divorce um, can experience problems like depression and relationship issues. But um, scientific research doesn't support that view that problems in adulthood are prevalent. Instead, it, demonstra it demonstrates that most children of divorce become well-adjusted adults. So I thought that was kind of so if I sounded like I just uh, went double back, uh, doubled back on myself there is that this um, this book that talked about the unexpected legacy of divorce, a 25 year landmark study, pre presents some data that talks about depression and those things happening um, later down the road from divorce. But uh, but then it's some data, some some research a little bit later. Um, for example, uh, the book 2002 book for better or worse divorce reconsidered um, this uh, researcher Hetherington and her co-author journalist John Kelly describe another 25 year study where Hetherington followed children of divorce and children of parents who stayed together. And she found that 25% of the adults whose parents had divorced experienced social, emotional, or psychological troubles compared with 10% of those parent, uh, of those whose parents remained together. So the findings suggest that only a 15% uh, delta there, or difference of adult children of divorce, experienced problems over and above those from stable families. So that's that's kind of the, the bigger data there is that the first study said, hey, we'll follow these uh, 25 years later, these people that their parents had divorced, and look, they're depressed, and they have anxiety, and that sort of thing. And then this, this follow-up study said, will follow uh, all kinds of people 25 years later. And look, they all are, you know, not all of them, but, but there is a large percentage of people that are experiencing anxiety, depression. And so the, the percentage is slightly higher for those who had gone through divorce as younger. But uh, I, so the big takeaway there is that, you know, w some of the data that we have that we know in general of people that are experiencing uh, anxiety, depression in general, that is on the rise and uh, and so the concept of that doesn't necessarily mean that it's just because of a divorce. I'll have people often that are going through divorce in my office and they talk about some things that their teenagers are doing and they feel so bad because they feel like this is a product of the divorce. And I'm sitting there having transference thinking, holy cow, my 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 kids are doing the same thing. My wife and I uh, were about to celebrate our 29th wedding anniversary, you know, and I feel like things are pretty solid in, in the in the marriage. So. Um, spend a lot of time on that one, but I hope that's okay because, again, if you're just reading through that article, if you're reading through Bill Murphy's article, um, it's just a quick paragraph that says, uh, you know, hey, if you're having a divorce, here's what happens to your kids. Um, number five is one that uh, maybe we get through a little quick, get them excited about math and early. Um, uh, Bill says, I certainly remember my mom drilling me on multiplication tables as a kid. And he says, not kidding. Um, he says, three nines, two sixes, five fifteens. And he says, it works. And then he makes a funny joke that I always enjoy. These type of jokes, he says, now it worked. I'm a billionaire. And then there's a little asterisk that says it's true, but only in Indonesian rupees. And that just reminds me of the uh, first time I ever went to Russia. I, I, it was in the 90s after the Cold War. And uh, I was there for business. I checked. I, I, what's the word? <laughs> I love when I can't remember a word. I uh, handed money. I... It's all the time. Exchange. I exchanged two hundred dollars. I had one point two million rubles, I believe. I was a millionaire for that week. It was uh, it was uh, fascinating. So regarding to young children, um, so talking about reading to them, reading to young children is important, but it turns out teaching them math skills is crucial as well. In one study of thirty five thousand young children, early math skills translated into not only future math achievement, according to the study's co-author Greg Duncan of Northwestern University, but also future reading achievement. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. I often do feel, and I hear this uh, echoed in my office, as someone who was not very strong at math, that being me, um, man, when you get older and you figure out that if I really would have just studied a little bit more or if I wouldn't have gotten so far behind that math builds on itself, um, that if I would have learned formulas, done the homework, a lot of these sort of things, that uh, apparently math could have been pretty pretty easy, I guess, because there's a right and a wrong answer. So, uh, But that's a, that's an important part, teaching your kids math. Okay, this one I'm excited to talk about. Uh, number six, teach them to try and not to worry about failing or much else. 
So uh, Bill Murphy says, you probably read about the idea of adopting a growth mindset versus a fixed or a scarcity mindset. If you haven't, short version um, for your kids, you want a growth mindset. You want them to view failure, which happens to all of us, as a chance to learn and grow, not as an ending. In other words, don't worry, keep trying. More than that, try to control your level of stress or at least control the extent in which they perceive your stress. And uh, I know I'm making the, the, this podcast is going a little longer than I had intended. So I will try to not go uh, too far down this path of I love the concept that he's talking about of try to control your level of stress or at least to control the extent to which they perceive your stress. So this is I, I often refer to this one as the um, what happens when they, you spill in your home concept. So when you spill, it is one of the when your kids spill, it's one of the greatest uh, times to practice mindfulness like nobody's business. Because spills happen. They do. And spills are actually an opportunity to, to show your kids that I care about you more than the fact that we have to clean up a spill. And uh, one of the first things I ever wrote that is still up on my website uh, somewhere up there is talking about this concept of embracing the spills in life. You know, if you grow up in a home where spills were met with anger or loud voices, then, man, when you spill something, you are terrified. And uh, but kids don't set out um, at the start of the meal to see if they can spill their drink, their milk, their juice, whatever it is. Um, adults, we spill. Uh, I was at a very, very high end um, training meeting at a very ginormous corporation a few weeks ago, and there was a, a big spill. And it was so impressive. And I even pointed this out to the group. I mean, there were these high ranking executives for this company and uh, everybody jumped into action, grabbing Kleenexes, napkins, paper towels, removing uh, electronics away, you know, because of the spill, nobody freaked out. Nobody overreacted. It was literally like a team bonding experience. Not that I'm recommending that we do a spill on the conference table and then see how everybody reacts, but it was pretty impressive. And so, um, controlling your, the extent in which they perceive your stress because kids are going to fail. That is the way that uh, life works and that's okay. So here's, I want to, again, a quick tangent, but Boy, follow me on this one, please. This is this has been something that's kind of changed my life here over the last couple of weeks. There's a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. If you're not familiar with it, I highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, I have a wonderful couple um, that is going to come on and do a book review with me about this book, Grit. One of those where they wrote in and uh, asked about the book, and, it, and it's a, I'm doing another one of those things where it's like, uh, hey, funny you should ask. Let's do a podcast together. So uh, I'm really excited to do that. So I went back and uh, listened to the book Grit over about two or three weeks ago. Grit is by pioneering psychologist Angela Duckworth, and, and I just am reading this from uh, the Amazon um, page. But Angela Duckworth shows anybody striving to succeed, be it parents, students, educated, educators, athletes, business people, that the secret to outstanding achievement is not just talent, but it's a special blend of passion and persistence, which she calls grit. Drawing on her own powerful story as the daughter of a scientist who frequently noted her lack of genius, Duckworth now is a celebrated researcher and professor, and she describes her early eye-opening stints in teaching, business consulting, and neuroscience, which led to a hypothesis that what really drives success is not genius, but it's a unique combination of passion and long-term perseverance. In the book Grit, she takes readers into the field to visit cadets struggling through their first days at West Point, teachers working in some of the toughest schools, finalists in the National Spelling Bee. She also mines fascinating insights from history and shows what can be gleaned from modern experiments and peak performance. And she shares what she's learned from interviewing dozens of high achievers, and uh, one of those is what I want to read a little bit about. So in this book, Grit, there are two pages, and I took pictures of them, and I sent them immediately to my wife, uh, and I've actually shared them with a couple of colleagues as well and some of my clients. Um, the two pages, um, let me read these. I'm going to read them, so please hang tight here. Uh, I think it's actually even page 110 and 111 in the book, uh, Grit. So she's talking about Jeff Bezos, and if you don't recognize the name, um, if you ever have used Amazon.com, which I think we probably all have, uh, Jeff Bezos is the founder of Amazon. So, so hang tight with me. This is fascinating. It goes into this parenting concept and how you can teach them to fail. So Jeff's, uh, here's, here we go. Uh, Jeff's unusually interest-filled childhood has a lot to do with his unusually curious mother, Jackie. Jeff came into the world two weeks after Jackie turned 17 years old. So, she told Angela Duckworth, I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about what I was supposed to do. She remembers being deeply intrigued by Jeff, <clears throat> excuse me, and his younger brother and sister. She says, I was just so curious about these little creatures and who they were and what they were going to do. I paid attention to what interested each one, and they were all different and followed their lead. So this is Jackie, the mom, saying she followed their lead. She said, I felt it was my responsibility to let them do deep dives into what they enjoyed. For instance, at three, Jeff asked multiple times to sleep in a, quote, big bed. Jackie explained that eventually he would sleep in a big bed, but not yet. 
She walked into his room the next day, and she found him, screwdriver in hand, disassembling his crib. Jackie didn't scold him. Instead, she sat on the floor and helped. Jeff slept in a big bed that night. By middle school, he was inventing all sorts of mechanical contraptions, including an alarm on his bedroom door that made a loud buzzing sound whenever one of his siblings trespassed across the threshold. She said, we made so many trips to Radio, Sh Radio Shack, Jackie said, laughing. Sometimes we'd go back four times in a day because we needed another component. Once he took string and tied all the handles of the kitchen cupboards together, and then when you open one, all of them would pop open. She said, I tried to picture myself in these situations. I tried to picture not freaking out. There's the key moment of these two pages. She tried to picture herself not freaking out. The milk spills on the counter, not freaking out. Um, kid fails at something, not freaking out. She said, I tried to imagine doing what Jackie did. This is Angela Duckworth saying, which was to notice that her oldest son was blooming into a world-class problem solver and then merrily nurture that interest. My moniker at the house was Captain of Chaos, Jackie told me, and that's because just about anything that you wanted to do would be acceptable in some fashion. Now, of course, I'm not saying that that's whatever, uh, going completely off the deep end or uh, torturing things or people or animals. I mean, it's not that. It's uh, Captain Chaos um, that if you want to do something, let's talk about it. Let's let's kind of weigh the pros and cons. I'm here for you. You can come to me with anything. Literally, you can, and we're going to try to talk about it. That's the, the, the concept here. Jackie remembers that when Jeff decided to build an infinity cube, essentially a motorized set of mirrors that reflect on one another's, Im one, uh, one another's image back and forth ad infinitum, she was sitting on the sidewalk with a friend. Jeff comes up to us and is telling us all the science behind it, and I listen and I nod my head and I ask a question every once in a while. After he walked away, my friend asked if I understood everything, and I said, it's not important that I understand everything, it's important that I listen. Holy cow, how fascinating is that? It's important that I listen. Um, I'm going to try to remember to get back to a tangent with that concept. Let me, two more paragraphs. By high school, Jeff had turned the family garage into a laboratory for inventing and experimentation. One day, Jackie got a call from Jeff's high school saying he was skipping classes after lunch. When he got home, she asked him where he'd been going in the afternoons. Jeff told her he'd found a local professor who was letting him experiment with airplane wings and friction and drag. And okay, Jackie said, I got it. Now let's see if we can negotiate a legal way to do that. In college, Jeff majored in computer science and electrical engineering. And after graduating, applied his programming skills to the management of investment funds. Several years later, Jeff built an internet bookstore named after the longest river in the world, Amazon.com. He also registered the URL www.relentless.com. And Angela Duckworth says, type it in your browser and see where it takes you. And, and I did that the second that I read that paragraph. Um, okay, back to uh, where she says in that, that concept of the infinity cube and that it's important that I listen. It just reminds me, and this is uh, maybe it's not exactly the same. But um, I have a son who really enjoys basketball. He's really good at basketball. And, uh, man, here's a, okay, Tony's old man moment. I need, like, a, some music that comes in at this time. Um, when I was a kid, we had, you know, a white pair of shoes. That was it. And you, you wore them into the gym. If any of you have kids that play basketball now, you know that, oh, my goodness, you're not going to, your soles of those shoes are not going to touch the outside. You know, you're going to walk in with these slides, or now kids are back to wearing vans. Or for a while, they were like bedroom slippers. But uh, you're not going to wear your, your shoes into the gym. Um, you're, not, you're, not gonna, you're only going to put them in when you get, when you get there. And uh, not just white basketball shoes, but they're, they are the color of the rainbow. There's a million different types. Every uh, NBA player has their own signature shoe, and they're extremely expensive. When my son was really getting into these shoes and basketball, it was almost like he was a shoe savant. You know, he could see somebody's uh, shoes, basketball shoes. And he told me, Dad, those are the Harden 14s, those are the Kobe 7s, those are the bronze this, those are the, the air this, hyperdunk that. And, and man, I could not follow it. it. All I wanted to do was let him know that how, you know, shoes in my day were 60 bucks, and you had one pair and you liked it, you know. And now it's like they're all 200 bucks or 250 bucks or 150 bucks. And all I wanted to tell him over and over again was that I don't, I just think that's ridiculous that those shoes cost that much. I was not down on the floor um, helping disassemble the crib, I'll tell you that much. Uh, I was sitting there full of fixing and judgment and guilt and shame and all these things. And I remember talking with my wife one time where I, I just was like, what is the harm of hearing this, this guy? He loves shoes. You know, maybe he's going to become, uh, you know, the founder of the next Nike or, or, or whatever. And, you know, or, or am I just going to make him feel bad about the fact that he loves shoes? So I started to listen. And I started to start to pick up a little bit on some things, understand some things. And uh, this isn't one of those situations where I say, and then once he was heard, he never cared about shoes again and invested his money in, in uh, uh, properties by the age of 10. And now he's a multimillionaire at 15. No, he still digs shoes. But uh, he and I can talk shoes all day long. And the fun part was he's since now grown way past me, uh, super taller than me and has a much bigger foot. But uh, I got some really cool shoes when he outgrew them. 
So, so, you know, it's that being there, listening, hearing, understanding what your child is going through. And uh, again, this is playing on that concept of teach them to try and not to worry about failing, that concept of, of grit. Um, so the thing that I love about that number six is just, you know, and I think this is, man, I don't know if I want to get off on this tangent right now or not. Sneak preview of some podcast coming soon to you on the virtual couch is just the more and more that we're starting to recognize just this concept of kids, you know, that, that they're, hey, nothing I'm about to say is going to make me sound anything less than about 100 years old. But they are gonna, the kids these days, you know, they're, they're going to do a lot of the things that they want to do. They're going to explore the things they want to explore. They have the world at their fingertips. If they want to watch a TV show, guess what? They're going to watch the whole season. And if we try to tell them that we used to have to wait a week, they don't I sound all dramatic. I would say they don't care, but they don't have a point of reference. If we tell them that we used to have to buy CDs and there's only one or two good songs on the CD and the, the other 12 were, were a bunch of garbage and we had to go spend 15 bucks on it. Or even before that, it was records. Or before that it was eight track tapes. And yes, I remember them all. Uh, they're not going, holy cow, dad, I'm going to stop, you know, uh, looking for things on my streaming media where so that I can get a song in a matter of seconds. I'm going to stop that because of that amazing story you just told me of you wasting $15 for two songs on the old Howard Jones CD. So, um, you know, this is just getting that concept of being able to be there and hear and, and listen to and, and just be there for our kids and understand their experiences and know that when we were young, you know, maybe we could go look at something on the encyclopedia or maybe we could um, maybe we could watch it on one of the three channels of TV. I feel like I should just keep going down this path or, you know, uh, before electricity or maybe we could listen to gather around the radio on a Sunday night and listen to War of the Worlds. Um, I'm way off on a tangent here. But uh, but it's just being there, listening to our kids, not trying to tell them the things that they shouldn't do. Or, I mean, it's not that we have to, you know, but but hearing them first, seek first to understand before being understood. All right, let's get to number seven, seven. This last one, I will tell you, this is the reason I am re-recording this podcast early at four o'clock in the morning on a Monday instead of going with the episode, the version that I had recorded days before, because this one, man, this one stuck to, stuck in my brain. Uh, and that's just me being super authentic and open and honest. Number seven, the last thing about raising these successful kids, these science-based ways, the article by Bill Murphy from Inc. Magazine, not Bill Murray, is show them a work ethic and achievement. So here's what he says. He says, if you want your kids to behave a certain way, the most likely way to make it happen is to model good behavior. And then he also puts a point in there. He says, the second most effective way might be to model really bad behavior and let them learn from your mistakes. But he says, I'm going to suggest the first idea. And and here is uh, and, and that alone is a very good point. There's a concept called the transformational figure. And that's the part where, um, you know, there's some data out there somewhere that I can never find that we talk about in the therapy world where a lot of people, for the most part, follow the patterns of their parents. But then there's people that could do almost a complete 180. And these are these transformational characters, these transformational figures. So they've learned the things that they didn't necessarily want to do from their parents, and they're doing the opposite. But again, here's where this podcast required a re-record. The next sentence I was confident would cause a lot of virtual couch listeners to feel bad. So I wanted to get some data to counter this next point because I couldn't do this entire uh, article and then say I'm going to link to it in the show notes and have somebody go up there and then say, wait a minute, you didn't cover this whole paragraph in number seven. I like the point about this work ethic and achievement, but the paragraph that follows bothers me a bit. And here's what it says. Here we go. And uh, again, Bill Murphy, I, I love the cut of his jib. I love his vibe. And uh, this uh, article has so much good talking points. I mean, look at how long we've been talking about this. But he says, moreover, a Harvard Business School study shows that kids who grow up with working moms have advantages over those who don't. Uh, as Gillette and Bayer wrote, the study found daughters of working mothers went to school longer, were uh, more likely to have a job in a supervisory role and earn more money compared to their peers who were raised by stay-at-home moms. Well, my wife is a stay-at-home mom, and, and I love her to death. I've never seen a woman work so hard in her whole life. I mean, you know, I'm the one that's like, man, if I was a stay-at-home dad, um, I would be watching a lot of Netflix and some things like that. But my wife, I'm like encouraging, hey, did you take a break today? Did you, did you, did you kind of relax? And uh, the answer is always no. And I'm always feeling like, why not? You know, that's... Uh, that's okay. Um, so I had to go dig up some data and I have people come in the office and, I, and man, here's that stuff where the couples therapy, where I will have a couple come in and, and maybe just part of the assessment. We're talking about what they do, the guy, um, you know, I don't know, corporate attorney, blah, 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 or that sort of thing. Wife and she'll kind of, I'm just a stay at home mom. And I just, I'm like, no, you're not just a stay at home mom. You're like an amazing stay at home mom. I mean, that's, you know, I had a stay at home mom. My wife's a stay at home mom. And uh, but then I also have women come into my office that uh, that are maybe stay at home moms. and They feel like, man, what if uh, what if I really want to be out in the workforce? And they feel bad about that. 
and and that there's nothing to feel bad about there. This is that where we all have our own uh, unique private experiences that lead us to this point in our life. We have our own core values, and so that's the point where I feel like. Um, the goal is not to shame or guilt somebody. It's the, it's just to kind of work with the data that we're given. So, so then I was able to go dig up really quickly. Um, here's a cool article. Oh, doggone it. I didn't put where I'll, I'll, I'll link to it. Um, but it's, uh, more women are becoming stay at home moms. It says we're not living in a leave it to beaver world anymore. Where 49% of women in 1967 were stay at home moms with a working husband. But the numbers from a recent Pew research study do show that the number of women who are becoming stay at home moms is on the rise. While 71% of moms do work outside of the home, 29% are staying home. That number is up 6% from, uh, it was like 2000. But the number shouldn't matter. Quitting your job to become a stay-at-home mom shouldn't be out of guilt or peer pressure. While there are many great reasons to be a stay-at-home mom, being a, a stay-at-home parent isn't for everyone. And let me even say, uh, Eric Schrantz, one of my guests on um, one of the early versions of the virtual couch, is a stay-at-home dad and now has a very successful podcast. And it, was, and it grew out of uh, him wanting to be a stay-at-home dad. And being there for his two kids and then starting to kind of fill his time with other things. The the pros of being a stay-at-home, let's say mom or dad, increase in child school performance, child has less stress and, ag- and aggression, social approval of stay-at-home uh, choice, the cons, um, moms often have a desire to go back to work, they may tend to have higher levels of sadness or anger, and social isol- isolation for a mother spending time mostly with kids. So at-home parents uh, benefit older kids, not just younger ones. So a recent study found that the benefits of having a parent at home extend beyond the early years of a child's life in the study. And uh, here's, here's a fair um, research sample. The edu- educational performance of 68,000 children was measured. They found an increase in school performance all the way to their high school age children. The biggest educational impact on their research was found on kids ages 6 to 7. Um, it also says most homeschoolers uh, have an at-home parent instructing them. A compilation of studies provided by the National Home Education Research Institute shows the number of statistics that support the importance of a parent at home for educational reasons. For example, research found homeschoolers generally score 15 to 30 percentile points above public school students on standardized tests, and they're achieving more average, uh, achieving above average scores on ACT and SAT tests. So whether you are an at-home parent homeschooling your child or you're simply there when uh, he or she gets off the bus after school, more studies are finding a parent at home is giving uh, children an academic edge over their peers that without a parent at home, regardless of whether you stay at home or work, the National Educational Association's research has proven that parent involvement in schools makes a difference in a child's academic performance and how long she actually stays in school. That last part of that data is what is fascinating. So it's whether whether it's a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, or it's a person who loves and, and feels more fulfilled that goes to work. Um, and this is where I go back to my emotional baseline concept. If somebody is not feeling f- feeling fulfilled at home, then are they not being the best parent that they can be? And and then if they are trying and it's just not gelling because it doesn't go with their core values, whatever those are that uh, that happen to be unique to that individual person, then do they start to have that what's wrong with me story playing through their brain? And if they're doing that, that's not helpful for us e- either. So this is that part where, hey, guess what? We're all created a little differently and so for some, it's going to feel very, very empowering to stay at home and be there for our kids in that way. And others, it's going to be if I go to work and fill my cup there, then I'm going to come home. And I'm going to be a better parent. So this is why I wanted to put this data and research out there as well um, that uh, kind of that kind of uh, challenges that uh, data around seven. And, and I think that point number seven that Bill Murphy was making, the data that he shows here, the Harvard Business School study. Um, says daughters of working mothers went to school longer and were more likely to have a job in a supervisory role and earned more money. There's that data. So then we went and found this other research, right, that says that the kids, uh, they perform higher academically. So look at the way that you can kind of work with. That's a nice way to say manipulate data is that if the goal is to make more money then then you know, having uh, the mom um, out of the home and, you know, it looks like the data kind of can back that up. If the goal is a higher test scores and, and a higher educational experience, then maybe that stay-at-home parent is the thing. So the goal is not to make somebody feel guilty. If we go back to number seven, and that's why I guess I'm kind of glad that Bill uh, Murphy put that in there because all he talked about was showing them work ethic and achievement. And then he went uh, – then he kind of shared that research around the stay-at-home mom stuff. Um I thought this was interesting, too. A couple of other just in the stay-at-home stay mom studies that I found. One says a majority of stay-at-home moms uh, consider going back to work. It says if you ever toy with the idea of going back to work, you're not alone. Research firm Reach Advisors conducted a study that found 57% of moms someday think about going back to work. Um, and uh, so it says there are moms who want to earn money but can't imagine rejoining the rat race for the typical 9-to-5 job. And so that's where people find uh, – what do they call them? What's the buzzword? Side hustle, side gig. Or uh, at home business opportunities, mom can start it well. 
Um, and then there's also a Gallup poll of 60,000 women surveyed that talked about women with no children, working moms, and stay-at-home moms uh, who are or who are not looking for work to distinguish between those who may not be employed because of circumstance rather than by choice. And uh, that data kind of showed that there was a little bit higher um, stress or some a little bit higher anxiety, some depression in stay-at-home moms. But uh, but I like the way that one ended. It says every stay-at-home mom, it, they're saying, must establish a support network, including regular outings with your mom friends to get a much-needed break and to prevent mommy burnout. And I should have been uh, putting in there everywhere it said mommy, daddy, if you're a stay-at-home dad as well. But to Bill Murphy's point, as we are now done with these seven um, science-based things for raising successful kids, he says there's no such thing as a complete list. He says Gillette and Bayer have a few other research-based recommendations that he takes issue with um, for different reasons. And so I really can appreciate that. I just thought it was uh, some good talking points, fun to do an article or a, a episode on parenting. So, hey, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I, uh, I Please send me any questions, comments, concerns that you have about this episode. And if you have questions, um, we can do a follow-up on this one as well. But uh, thanks for hanging with me. Thanks for putting up with the uh, – not putting up with. You know what? I'm really, really excited about the uh, the opportunity with BetterHelp.com. And again, and if you skip through all those um, ads at the beginning or the middle, uh, BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch, and you can get 10% off your first month of uh, their counseling services. And I highly recommend that you go take a look at that. And uh, until next time, I will see you again on the virtual couch. Oxbus.